0: We just sang a song, "O to be like Thee," and when we look at the very first verse of that song, we have to ask ourselves: Is that really true of each one of us? O to be like Thee, blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. Is that something that we strive for every day of our life, every moment that we live? That we want to be more like Jesus, and as the chorus says, we want His image stamped on our heart. We strive for that every day. I want that to be our goal this year. Is to be more like Jesus. To be more like Christ. To have His attitude. To have His desires. To have His longings. To have His compassion. To have all the things that He has in His life. Let it be a part of our lives. Let us strive every day. That next portion of that song, gladly I'll forfeit all of life's treasures. Jesus, I perfect likeness to wear. What if it did cost us all of our earthly treasures? Would we still want to be a follower of Jesus? I think that we see that in the New Testament where many, it did cost them everything that they had. It cost them their possessions. And it even cost them their lives. In John chapter 17, we learn a great deal about Jesus. It's kind of interesting when you think of that prayer that was read. Quite a few verses there but as a prayer that involves you and me. We can literally hear Jesus praying for you and me. Even though He lived over 2,000 years ago, that is something that is very unique in that prayer and that we see a lot of insight into what Jesus thought was important in our lives. We see in John 17 that we find Jesus praying for Himself, for His apostles, and for us. The Bible scholars are uncertain as to where that prayer takes place. We know that it was not in the upper room because in John chapter 14, the last verse of that chapter, we see that Jesus left. They left that place. He said at that point, let us uh, uh, go hence. And it didn't take place in the garden. Because the first verse of chapter 18 still has Jesus and His company on the Jerusalem side of the Kedron. And some have suggested that the prayer took place on the edge of a hill overlooking the Kedron Valley. Josephus tells us that there were approximately two and a half million people in the city for the Passover on that particular occasion. And if there was one lamb that was sacrificed for every ten people, that would be 250,000 lambs slaughtered on that special day. For such an occasion, as I've I've read, that a trough was constructed from the temple mound out to the edge of the Kedron Valley. And it was through that trough that the blood from those lambs flowed away from the temple. And perhaps Jesus, as He was walking along, as He approached Kedron, near the edge, He could see and He could smell the blood that had been shed for those lambs. By those lamps. We know at Passover there would have been a full moon. And if it was a, if it was a cloudless night, the moon would have illuminated the horizon, the, the, the landscape. And perhaps it was the sight and the smell of that blood that struck the heart of Jesus. It's quite possible that he realized. That his time had come and that he was to be the lamb that would be slaughtered for our sins. Knowing what was about to happen or what was going to happen within just a few hours, I can imagine Jesus falling to the ground and talking to his Father in prayer. There's something unique about this prayer. This is God talking to God. God the Son talking to God the Father. So I believe that there's a lot that we can learn from this prayer. It's no ordinary prayer. The eternal Holy Father is talking or listening to His Son. The Holy Sovereign Son. You see... If we want to know about a person, you can learn a great deal from their private prayers. Not the prayers that we pray from up here in public. Not the prayers that we pray around the Lord's table. Not the prayers that we pray at home around the dinner table. But if you want to know someone, listen to their private prayers. We're privileged here to hear a private prayer of Jesus with His Father. There's something that we can learn that will help us to become like Jesus. Several lessons from this prayer. First of all, we have to learn to believe in prayer. Do we believe in prayer? Do you and I as Christians, do we believe in talking to God, communicating with Him, and that He hears our prayers? How many times does Jesus pray between the upper room? When you look in the upper room and, the, and his death on the cross, there's probably nine or ten times. We know that he prayed in the upper room for the, the bread and the fruit of the vine. We know that he prayed once here in this uh, prayer that we read here in John chapter 17. We know that he prayed three times in the garden. And then we know that there was three times that he prayed on the cross, when He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And my God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And into Thy hands I commend my spirit. The question is, how often do you and I pray? How important is prayer in your life in my life? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17... Scripture tells us there that we are to pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean that we can t- constantly walk down a road or as we go through this life, that there's a prayer coming off of our lips. But it means that we pray often. That we pray without stopping. That we don't look at, look at it as something that's an annoyance or a hindrance. That is something that is a privilege to be able to talk to God and that we talk to Him all the time. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. It tells us that we will, therefore, that, God, that, that men pray everywhere. So we're to talk to God everywhere. brother. we shouldn't be afraid to talk to God wherever we are at, wherever we're located. We shouldn't be afraid to talk to God in a workplace. We shouldn't be afraid to talk to God in a public restaurant. We shouldn't be afraid to talk to God in many places that we go every day. It doesn't have to be to be seen of men Because certainly that could be what we're doing it for if that's what we're doing it for. But we need to realize that we are to talk to God and we can talk to Him anywhere we are located. In James chapter 5, you can look at the entire chapter and we can see that when when we're sick, we are to pray. That when we're troubled, we are to pray. When we're caught up in sin, we are to pray. We are to talk to God quite often. In the Old Testament, we can see that in Jewish times that they prayed three times a day. At nine, at twelve, and at three. We can go back in the Old Testament, we can see that Daniel practiced prayer or prayed three different times of the day. You can go back to Psalm 55 and verse 17 where David said evening, morning, and noon that he would pray. And so we see that it was a constant... uh, in their lives that they would talk to God. They saw the importance. Do we see the importance of talking to God? I would like to encourage all of us in this new year to make it a goal to pray a minimum of three times a day. not saying that that's what we have to do. You can pray more than that. But I think that we need to communicate with God, not just at the dinner table. But in the morning when we get up, asking God to help us through the day. At the the middle of the day, maybe asking Him to help us to make it through the remainder of the day and thanking Him for what He's done thus far in the day. And certainly as we close our eyes at night, we need to talk to God and let Him know our concerns and our needs. Number two, we learn from this prayer that Jesus was mindful of his priorities. Even though he was facing death straight on, his mind was on his father's business. His desire was to do his father's work, to do what God sent him to this earth to do. We see that in this prayer, and in his prayer we see two things that were very, uh, very interested that he was very interested in, and that was his relationship with his father. And his relationship with the people that were here that were associated with him. He's concerned about his apostles. He's concerned about his disciples, those that were followers of him. And he was concerned about you and me today. Even in the prayer way back there, Jesus, we see his desire for us that we were a priority in his life. Jesus was interested in people. Brethren, we need to be interested in people. Jesus was not interested in property or power or politics or popularity. You see, real life is a triangle. It's me, God, and my fellow man. That's the concern that we have. God should be at the top. And then it's me and our fellow man. All of those things are important to God. Those three things. And sever one of those relationships. And it weakens or severs the others. In other words, if I have hatred in my heart for my brother and I don't care about my brother, then how can I care about God? In 1 John 4, verse 20, John asks, or makes a very important point. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? You see, John was very plain. That if you say that you love God and hate your brother, then guess what? You are a liar. The truth is not in you. You're not telling the truth. You can't love God and hate your brother. Why? Because you see your brother. You haven't seen God. And we cannot say we love God whom we have not seen when we can't love or appreciate and get along with our brother who we can see. Jesus boiled the law of Moses down to two commands. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, those were the priorities that Jesus had. His relationship with His Father and His relationship with people on this earth. The question is, how are we doing with our relationships with one another? Is our relationship with God being hindered or hampered or troubled because of our relationship with one another? John is telling us that our relationship with God cannot be right when we make no attempt to have a loving relationship with others at all. Brethren, I want to encourage us all not only to make prayer important in our life, but to make our priorities as pure and clear and properly aligned with God as we possibly can. The third point that we learn from this prayer of Jesus is to accept God's timetable. Jesus... Basically, said the time has arrived, the hour is come. We see that in verse 1. The question is when our hour comes, will we be ready? Are we willing, even today, to submit to God's timing? Are we ready to go? Are we ready to stay? Are we willing to suffer? Are we ready to serve? Are we ready to die or ready to live the life, whatever God has in store for us? Are we ready to do it? And I'm not talking about death. I'm not talking about when it comes to the end of this life. I'm talking about right now. Are we ready to do what God wants us to do? When God places someone in front of you that needs to hear the gospel of Christ, when God gives you an opportunity to visit those that are sick, when God gives you an opportunity to help those in need, are you ready? To do what you're supposed to do as a Christian? Do you have the image of Jesus stamped on your heart to the point where they look at you and they can see Christ in you? You see, sometimes all we think about is the end. We need to think about here in the middle. I'm not talking about dying the physical death, I'm talking about dying to self, dying to the world. Dying to sin. I'm talking about living for Jesus. I'm talking about allowing God to lead us in the paths of righteousness. I'm talking about being about our Father's business. David prayed in Psalms chapter 23 and verse 3. He led me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Are we willing to allow God to lead us in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake, to His honor, to His glory? Are we willing to live and go and do what God wants us to do so that we can glorify His name? David, even in the valley of the shadow of death, he was willing to go to glorify God. We can look at Esther. Esther. In Esther chapter fourteen and verse or chapter four and verse fourteen, where Mordecai says to Esther, "Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this?" Have you ever thought about that? That's talking about the providence of God. We don't always know the providence of God. We don't know uh, He doesn't operate in miracles today. So His providence is there. He uses the law of nature, the laws of this uh, this life, to make things happen. And so how do you know that when that person comes to you and says, I've been searching for the truth, that maybe you are the person that's supposed to tell them what the truth is? And the question is, would you be ready if that question came? If someone asked you, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe what you believe? Would you be able to tell them the answer? Or would it be, uh, well, I really don't know. I just grew up that way. That's not the answer that we're supposed to give. Are we ready? Jesus knew His mission. Do we? Our mission isn't to build up bank accounts and to have fancy houses and nice cars. Our mission is to glorify God. Jesus knew His mission life doesn't just happen by accident sometimes God puts us in places where we can do things for His cause the question is do we just pass it off and let somebody else do it? or do we do it ourselves? Isaiah said here my Lord send me do we have that attitude today? Are we willing to say, Jesus, lead me and I will follow? You know, we sang a lot of good songs this morning about the influence of Jesus in our life. Do we allow Him to lead us through His Word to where we need to go, where we need to be in order to be what God wants us to be? Are we, are we insisting on doing what we want? Seeing our own business rather than His business, His work? His timing. You say, well, you see, work is important in my life. It is important. I'd venture to say all of us need money. I don't know too many of us that don't need money. So work is a good thing. But when you're in the workplace, do people see that you're a Christian? Or is that something that you're going to hide from? And you don't have to wear a sign. You don't have to wear something on your head that says, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. They should be able to look at your life and see that there's something different about you. You don't act like everybody else acts. You don't laugh at some of the dirty, filthy things that they laugh at. You don't go to the places that they would go to. You don't talk about the same thing that they talk about. You don't use the language that they use. They see that there's something different about you. Why not turn your life over to Him? Live the life that He has in store for us, not just the, the day we die, But every day that we live, what a great life it is when we accept and submit to God's timing. Number four, are we willing to be used? I want you to look at verses 1 and 5 and you can see the words glorify me. In that chapter, the word glorify appears several times. In chapter 17. And we're talking about, we're not talking about, Lord, give me a million dollars so other people can see how blessed I am. We're not talking about, Lord, give me a brand new, spanking new car so everybody can see how well off I am that you've blessed me. Do you realize what it meant when Jesus said, glorify me? Do you know what that meant when Jesus said those words, glorify Me? It meant, hang Me on a cross until I'm dead. You know what glorify Me meant to the Apostle Paul? It meant arrest, jail, beatings, stonings, shipwreck, abuse... And death. Rather than again, some of us need to die. We need to die to self, to our own selfish ambitions. We need to die to lust and sin. We need to die to the world, to materialism, so that God can be glorified in us. Isn't it time that we understand that being like Jesus may mean suffering? for the cause of Christ. Jesus' deepest desire was to glorify the Father, His Father. His greatest ambition was to do whatever He had to do to allow God's name to be honored. Brethren, let us all be more like Jesus every day that we live. Number five. We see that Jesus finished the work that God had given to him. Jesus said, I came to or came to do the will of my Father who sent me. We you know that early in life he was about his father's business. He'd done a lot of good things his entire life. Lived here around thirty three years. But it was all for nothing. Unless he was willing to suffer the cross. Well, think about that. All the good that Jesus accomplished while he was alive, had he refused to go to the cross, his life would have been a waste. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I kept the faith. Brethren, we need to realize that we cannot ever give up. I'm afraid some of my brethren have given up. We can look back over the years and we can see brethren that were faithful that are no longer faithful. They've given up. Paul said, I fought a good fight. That doesn't sound like that was a leisure walk, that doesn't seem like it was something that was simple. It sounded like that's something that it was a, he was determined, that there was a battle that was going on and he realized it and he was willing to fight that fight and he finished the course. Most important, when he got to the end, he had kept the faith. Brethren, it ain't over until you are over. Don't stop fighting the fight because you're old. Don't stop fighting the fight because you would rather enjoy the pleasures of sin. Keep on keeping on. If you're teaching a Bible class, keep on teaching a Bible class. If you visit the sick, keep on visiting the sick. Take care of the poor. Care for shut-ins. Serve others. Just keep working the work that God has for us to accomplish. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. There's some that give up even though they go through all the motions. In their heart, they've given up. Don't let that happen. Where do I read about retirement in the kingdom of God? Where do you read about retirement in the Bible? The concept of retirement from God's work can't be found anywhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's not a biblical one. It's not a scriptural one. Think about it. Who in the Bible retired from the work before they died? You can't find any. You work for the Lord until the end. You want to compare it to baseball. In baseball, how many runs count that don't cross the plate? I've seen the Detroit Tigers, and I'm sure you can look at any other baseball team, but the Detroit Tigers seem to have it happen a lot of times. They get a runner on base, the first batter gets up, maybe get a double, get a triple, and he stays right there for the rest of the inning until that third out is recorded. He's still standing there at second base, he's still standing there at third base, he doesn't score. And guess what? A lot of runners are left on base. It doesn't count until they cross home plate. brother. And it doesn't count for us until we cross home plate, which is... Heaven. That's the retirement plan God has for us. Elders need to keep leading. They shouldn't die making decisions. They should die doing the work and leading by examples. Deacons should keep on doing the work, the task that they've been assigned until the end. Preachers and Bible teachers, don't stop studying, teaching, and preaching. Don't die on base. Can you name anyone in the Old Testament? Anyone in the New Testament that retired from God's work? Retirement is an American concept, a Western world concept, certainly not a biblical one. And Jesus' attitude was, I will not give up. I will not stop. I will press on doing the will of My Father, working His work. Brethren, we're not finished until it's over. Can we say that we're fighting the good fight? That we're striving to finish the course? That our desire is to keep the faith? Are we doing that every day of our lives? Jesus' attitude was, I will not give up, I will not never stop. I will press on doing what the will of my Father, working His work regardless of the criticism, the shame, the pain, and the toughness of the task. God, help us to be more like Jesus. Revelation 2 and verse 10 says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. That may mean while we're here on this earth, we're going to be faithful even if it costs us our life. But let us be faithful whenever that day may be. The sixth thing, sixth thing that we learn is that Jesus was evangelistic. We hear him say in John chapter 17 and verse 6 I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of, this, out of the world. Thine they it were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Brethren, we will not evangelize everybody that we come in contact with. Jesus didn't. The Apostle Paul didn't. Peter did not. But we can be daily examples for those that are around us, that they can see what a Christian is. And God will not hold us personally responsible for everybody. But I believe that the Bible teaches us that He will hold us responsible for those He has given to us, placed in our lives, in our care. I believe that He will hold us responsible for our spouses, for our children, for our grandchildren, for our extended family, for our friends, our neighbors, for people that we work with. We may not win them to Christ. But we are to strive to lead them to Christ, and if they make that decision to stay away from Christ, that's their decision. And we're not going to be held accountable for their decision. But that doesn't mean we're not trying. Do they know Jesus? We look at children. Sometimes we look at our children and we say, oh, they're very successful. You ask somebody, they'll say, oh yeah, I have five children. They all have college educations. They have successful jobs. I have ten grandchildren. My, my children, they have four or five bedroom houses. They drive SUVs. Yes, sir, they're successful. But do they know Jesus? Do they know the really thing, or the really important things of this life? Do they know Christ? We may have taught our children all the successes of this world, but have we taught them the successes of Jesus Christ? Because if they have everything that the world has to offer and they don't have Christ, they have nothing. What are their values? What you taught them about the values that God teaches to us. Let me show you something about being evangelistic from the text. Evangelism will never happen. It will never occur in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in the workplace until we mention people in prayer. In verse 9, we see Jesus do that. Are you praying for anybody Specifically, that they'll obey the gospel, that they'll hear it and accept it and obey it. And until they see that everything that we have belongs to God, like we see in verse 10, and as we see in verse 11, that we're of the world, or not, we're in the world, but not of the world. Until they see that in our lives, we're not going to convert too many people. We need to let them know in our lives, by our example, by the words that we use, the things that we do, that getting to heaven is the most important thing in our life. Having that right relationship with God is the most important thing in our life. They need to see that. And they need to see the joy. They need to see our faith and they need to see our confidence in God. It's hard to convince people that they need to be a Christian if you look so miserable in your life. If you have no faith in what God has taught us and told us, if you have no confidence in what God's Word tells us, brethren, they need to see that in our lives. The world doesn't need to see us wringing our hands in hopelessness and faithful or faithlessness, they need to see a people that truly believe in a God of heaven and believe in His Word, and they put it into action in their life. And by putting it in in, in, in action in their life, they, it brings joy and confidence in God Almighty. And evangelism will not occur until we give them the truth of God's Word. We see that in verse 14. We must know that Americanism, democracy, education, political correctness does not save people's souls. The Word of God saves people's souls. Listen to me this morning. We don't live by the Word. We don't preach the Word. We don't proclaim the Word of God because it's politically correct. We proclaim that Word. We live by that Word. We preach that Word because it is the truth. And sometimes we may not like that truth, but that truth is the only thing that can save people's souls. Sometimes there may be things that we don't even want to discuss in there. I know that there's some brethren that don't want to hear certain topics. They don't like certain things that the Bible says. But it's the truth. People don't want to know about hell, but guess what? If if there's a good chance that you're going to go there, don't you want to know how to avoid it? May God help us. Make us more like Jesus. Make us more evangelistic. And we must act according to the truth. Jesus believed. He practiced and preached the truth. John 17. Verse 17. His heart, nor His teaching, was in to church creeds, traditions, or non-essential stuff. He wasn't into a Jewish heritage. And He definitely wasn't into political correctness. He told people what they needed to hear and guess what? Sometimes they were offended. Sometimes the truth offends people. Help us to be more like Jesus to share the truth that can save people's souls. Because anything absent of the truth is not going to do so. Jesus knew that truth saves that truth is what sanctifies us, and that truth is what sets us free. Truth forgives us. Truth sustains us. It judges us. And one day, truth will take us home. What regulates your life? What regulates yours and my life today? Is it the Word of God? Or is it what the world wants us to say? Don't ever, don't ever be ashamed of what the Bible says about any subject. What regulates your life? Is it the financial truth? Political truth? Social truth? Some talk show truth? Or some television evangelist? God gives us truth and only truth. And may that truth be the only thing that we have and use in this new year. Let that be what motivates us as a congregation of God's people. And then finally, let unity be our goal. Jesus prayed for unity among believers. We find that in verse 21. He said, Make them one, Father, as You and I are one. Unity in our churches today is simple. If God is our Father, and we've obeyed His commands to become His children, then we are His people. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And the Bible teaches us that when we obey God, we do things that what He told us to do in order to be saved, that we are His children, that we are His instruments to be used, we are His servants, and we are to be a living sacrifice Of the one who we obeyed. Being a child of God means that we do the will of our Father which is in heaven. Some people want to, some brothers, want to call everybody brethren, whatever denomination they may be. But we know, in fact, that they haven't done what the Bible teaches one must do in order to be saved, that they're not worshiping according to what God's Word tells us that we're to do in order to worship God. We can't call people brethren unless they are truly brethren. God said, I came to do the will of my Father. Let that be the decision of whether we fellowship people or not. Let God determine who are His children. And if we've done those things, then that makes us a child of God. This morning, we've gone into a private prayer that Jesus had with His Father. God speaking to God. And we learn what it takes to be more like Jesus in our daily walk. The truth is, all too few people, all too few teenagers, all too few mothers and fathers, all too few executives and workers, all too few retirees, all too few church members are willing to be like Jesus in our world. Are we? That's our challenge for this year. Paul said to, not be, or to be conformed to the image of Christ. Let the heart, mind, and attitude, the disposition of Jesus, let that be in you. The question is, what do you and I need to do to be more like Jesus? It's easy to look out and say what you ought to do, but we have to look in the mirror and ask, what do I need to do? We need to ask ourselves that question. Do we really want the image of Jesus stamped deep on our heart? Do we really want the world to look at us and say, there is a Christian. There's someone that's truly striving to be like Christ. There's something different about them. Or is our Christianity something that we want to hide? We don't want them to know that we're a Christian at work because then we can't do the things that they're doing. Because even I have found that the world holds us to a higher standard. And when they know that you're a Christian, they expect something different than what the world gives. The question is, are we willing to do that? Do we need to become a child of God by faith and repentance, by confessing the name of Christ before men and then being buried with our Lord in baptism? As baptized believers in Christ, do we need to make changes in our lives? Perhaps in the same areas that we've talked about this morning, our our text teaches us that Jesus was praying for us Let's do all that we can to have that image of Christ seen in the world in our lives so that we can truly be a disciple or follower of Christ. This morning, if you need to respond to the invitation, feel free to do so. Come and have a seat up here on the front row as we stand and sing.